Hey, y'all, how's it going? Hey, look, I showed up for the show. I guess you did, too. Or else you wouldn't be able to hear me right now. Hmm. Uh, yeah, hey, I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. 29th of December, 2015. Can you believe how fast time goes? The new Star Wars movie already came out. Christmas is already come and gone. It's almost the new year. Huh. Anyway, I'm me. It's my show. Thanks for tuning in. Sorry about yesterday, man. I had a show planned and everything. And then, yeah, it's the funniest thing, man. It was a setting on my sound card on my computer was set so that I couldn't hear my computer. I.e., I couldn't hear the bumper music or the commercials being played from LRN's side of the program, meaning, eh, no point in trying to do the show like that. But here's the mystery. How in the world did that setting get changed? Uh, I don't even remember opening up the sound card's GUI in order to click on anything. They still call them GUIs, the little thing, you know, the graphical user interface. I didn't change anything. Not since it last worked right. Somehow it got changed on its own. Either that or, uh, I don't know, the skull and bones broke into my house and just unclicked one thing. And then snuck back out again. I guess it wouldn't have been an actual bonesman, right? Just one of their secret agents. It seems like, uh, it seems like great lengths to go to just to sabotage one day's show. Yes, it took me half an hour to figure out. Oh, somehow this got unclicked, huh? And by then I thought, ah, well, I'll just skip the show. You're too damn late. Yes, it took me half an hour to figure out the problem. I was sending text messages to Ian that said, I don't know what the hell is wrong, man. I, everything seems right to me. Ah, uh, number six says it was uh, Windows 10 did it to me. Bastards. Probably was. Damn stupid jerky Windows 10 jerks. All right, well, at least I'll know for next time. Oh, wait a minute. No, this is the computer where I rolled back to uh, Windows 7 because Windows 10 wouldn't work with my sound card at all. So that ain't it. And it worked since then, you know. Anyway, it doesn't matter. What a stupid waste of a radio show. Hey, I'm Scott Horton. This is my radio show. It's about how much I hate the wars and want you to also hate them. That's what the show's about. If you go to my website, scotthorton.org, uh, you can find all my archives. There's more than 4,000 interviews now, going back to 2003. Uh, almost all about foreign policy. scotthorton.org. Also, you can follow me on Twitter, at Scott Horton Show. I'm kind of a jerk in Twitter life, so you might not want to. But if you do want to, it's uh, twitter.com slash... Scott Horton Show. And then, uh, oh yeah, join up the chat room with the boys. How's it going, guys? Good to see you. 
Uh, scotthorton.org slash chat. All you need is a plain old browser. scotthorton.org slash chat, fake name and a captcha, and you're in there. Um, also, it's an IRC free node chat if you like using external chat applications. It's an IRC free node chat room called hashtag Scott Horton Show. Hashtag Scott Horton Show. And then, you know, you can hang out and talk about how bad Windows sucks and how much fun it is to restore an El Camino or whatever it is you want. Cool. There are a few El Caminos on my block, actually. None of them are mine. But there are eh, two or three, even. That's a lot of El Caminos to be on one block in 2015, wouldn't you say? I think that was one of my first toy cars when I was a kid in El Camino, now that I think about it. It's like a car in the front, dude, but it's like a pickup truck in the back, man. Ain't that something? Anyway, Lemmy's dead. Can you believe that? I mean, I guess it had to happen sooner or later. But he's only 70. People live longer than that nowadays. Really glad I did get a chance to see Motorhead play once. Stubbs Barbecue back 10 years ago now, I guess. Um, but dang, man. Anyway. Uh, for you Motorhead fans out there, I always like to be the bearer of bad news, you know, in case you hadn't heard the news. Uh, killed by death. These things happen, man. In fact, I saw on Twitter last night a quote from him where he said, eh, I guess if I died tomorrow, I couldn't complain. It's been a pretty good time. Something like that, so. Yeah, you gotta figure, there's a guy who had a lot of beers. Yeah, yeah, number six says, he found out he had cancer on December 26th and died two days later. Boy, he must have been really sick to go to the hospital then. The wife was saying, man, if you gotta die from cancer, I guess that's the way to do it, dude. Two days later, huh? God dang. He was at stage six or something. They said he played a show just a week ago in Germany, two weeks ago or something. Man. Anyway. Shouldn't sit here and go on and on about Lemmy longer than I ever did about MCA, right? Uh, business. New York Times. Well, first of all, did you see this thing in, uh, in Reason last week? I, th- I think I meant to run it on antiwar.com. I can't remember if I did or not. There's a thing in Reason about how this jerk, uh, some lawyer named Posner, I never like lawyers named Posner for some reason. They're always such jerks, but... And writers named Posner. Plagiarists named Posner. Anyway. So this Posner, uh, I forgot his first name, doesn't matter. Some scumbag professor from the University of Chicago, uh, destroyed by a guy named Anthony L. Fisher on the blog at Reason Magazine. Um... For his ridiculous calls for the outlawing of the visitation of ISIS websites or websites that glorify ISIS. 
as to be determined by government employees. And now the New York Times has this thing, too. ISIS influence on web prompts second thoughts on First Amendment. And this one got a follow-up from Anthony L. Fisher at Reason Magazine as well, where he says, yeah, second thoughts. Clearly, he's talking about second thoughts on the part of Eric Eckholm, the author of this supposed news piece at the New York Times. Okay. In the United States of America, here is the law. The government may not abridge your speech on your own property or on public property with the exception of conspiring to commit actual felonies like, hey, I'll give you $100 if you'll kill this politician I hate or something like that. That would be uh, a use of speech that is not protected by the law. Or, say, leading a mob, for example, and directly and immediately inciting violence. A clan leader yelling, you know, there he is, let's burn his house down. And, you know, you guys do it, but directing them to do it. That kind of thing. Otherwise, that's it. That's it. The government has no authority. You know why? Because that's the law. You know why? It's the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. Hey, all Scott here. If you're like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it tastes good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at darrenscoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world. All specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. Darren'sCoffee.com. Use promo code Scott and you get free shipping. Darren'sCoffee.com. All right, y'all, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. And look, they're not going to get away with this. You know, they can trample all over the Second Amendment, and they can trample all over the Fourth Amendment, and they can trample all over parts of the First Amendment. They can trample all over. They can ignore the Eighth, Ninth, and Tenth entirely. They can hold down the Fifth and cut its throat. They can, okay, they can do whatever they want. But outright... Outlawing free speech, eh, I don't think that's going to work. Outlawing who can visit what website, that's not going to work in the United States of America. The Supreme Court will strike that down, I think. This is just, it's too settled of settled law. You know, all this crap about yelling fire in a crowded theater, first of all, is a horrible metaphor. Oliver Wendell Holmes pretending that opposing the First World War amounted to... Uh, you know, deliberately, falsely sparking a stampede that leads to the death of innocent people for opposing war with Germany. 
were to create Nazism and communism in the world? Yeah, somebody should have exercised some prior restraint on Oliver Wendell Holmes, I think. But anyway, all that crap was struck down anyway. The relevant Supreme Court ruling now on free speech is the Brandenburg decision, Brandenburg versus Ohio, where a leader of the Klan said something to the effect that we're going to get some revengeance against the U.S. government. And he was arrested and prosecuted. And the Supreme Court said, no, you can't arrest and prosecute this guy for saying that. Now, if he said, come on, man, let's get him, and actually led a lynch mob, or, you know, led a group of people in an act of violence, that would be different. But swearing that one day we are going to get some revengeance on you is not prohibited speech. It cannot be. You know why it cannot be? Because the U.S. government does not have the authority to make it illegal. Because the theory, and I know this sounds completely ridiculous, but bear with me. The theory is that the human beings of the middle part of North America are born naturally free. That we allow the government to exist as long as it stays within the lines that we demarcate. So, you may not ban free speech. You don't have the authority to. You can't go and F yourselves to death. You can't do it. You don't have the power to do it. Period. That's it. Why is this even a debate? Why is anyone saying, geez, we really got to worry about what websites people are looking at? And maybe we need to empower the government to punish them for looking at websites that we don't like. Communicating with whoever it is on the internet that they say that they don't like. Well, it's of course because the U.S. government destroyed the Middle East. It's because the U.S. government maintains a world empire which generates resistance, which generates the excuse for even more world empire, which generates even more resistance, which generates security clampdowns here. Hey, innocent people were killed. The lesson of San Bernardino isn't that, wow, this hardly ever happens. It's amazing. How rarely this kind of thing happens in this country. No, the lesson of San Bernardino is it could be you. It could be me. It could be your grandma at any time in any neighborhood anywhere in America. Ah, how are we going to prevent this? Let's nationalize Facebook. Better. Let's deputize it. Let's create a public private partnership, otherwise known as fascism. And as Donald Trump said, hey. We're going to have to start giving up some of these privileges that we have had up until now. Uh, He was actually speaking of the free exercise clause, not the free speech clause, the free exercise clause of the First Amendment that says the government does not have the authority to prevent you from going to the mosque if you feel like it. They don't have the power in the first place to 
ever even attempt such a thing. And Trump says, yeah, that's your privilege that you've been granted by the state up until now, and maybe it's time for the state to change its mind about that. You don't have a right to worship whichever version of the one God that so many people still worship thousands of years after these folk tales were invented. Uh, that's not up to you. That'll be up to them. Because uh, you have no natural right granted by your God or anyone else or, you know, your state of nature or any other argument or any other thing. All you got is privileges passed down to you from your daddy, the government, and that they can take away uh, when they deem that it is necessary and proper to do so. And so here we go. You don't want to be killed, do you? The Bill of Rights isn't a suicide pact, is it, guys? Huh. Uh, I would argue that the Bill of Rights is meant to prevent the first six articles of the Constitution from being a suicide pact. You might have noticed if you ever read them. As I was explaining on Bill of Rights Day a couple of weeks ago, it shouldn't be called a Bill of Rights. It's a bill of restrictions by free people against the government. That's what they're called in the preamble. Declaratory and restrictive clauses against the state by free men. Now, I know it's a load of crap, but I think it's an important argument for people to, you know, at least explain, explicate a little bit. It is a far different premise than the kingdoms of the old world where everyone is deemed to exist as part of the state as determined by its leader to whatever degree. Again, that was Hamilton's argument against the Bill of Rights. That What are you talking about? A Bill of Rights is a thing that a king grants his subjects. We don't want that. The whole premise here is that we say what our rights are and we have a Bill of enumerated powers called the Constitution that we have granted to the government. So don't screw that up by turning it on its head and having the government grant us rights or be seen to be granting us rights. And, of course, he was an evil, cynical, lying, manipulative bastard who, as soon as the Constitution was ratified, argued that, okay, I guess the Constitution allows anything it does not explicitly forbid. Um, so that was why he didn't want the Bill of Rights at all. He didn't want any restrictions at all. But he made a great argument. <laughs> and anyway, there it is. New York Times pretending to be a news story. Hey, maybe we need to get rid of freedom of speech because ISIS. Superior blends of premium coffee. Roasted fresh in Zionsville, Indiana. Darren's coffee satisfies the casual and the connoisseur. Scott Horton Show listeners, visit DarrensCoffee.com and use the coupon code SCOTT at checkout for free shipping. DarrensCoffee.com Because everyone deserves to drink great coffee. 
you hate government, one of them libertarian types, or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers. Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still, if you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. All right, you guys, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Hey, man, check it out on antiwar.com today. Dan Sanchez has this uh, great article, Happy 20th, antiwar.com, where he says nice things about Justin and myself and antiwar.com. It's a really nice little piece there. The great Dan Sanchez. Our newest regular writer. By the way, I should have mentioned that Sheldon Richmond is now a regular columnist at antiwar.com as well, which is very important to me. All right. Um, now on to uh, who should have been our guest on the show yesterday before it exploded. Uh, but our first guest on the show today, our good friend Eric Margulies, uh, writing at ericmargulies.com, lourockwell.com, and uns.com, U-N-Z, uns.com. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing, Eric? Hello, great Scott. Uh, just fine and ready to roll. All right, good deal. Uh, better than I can say for myself here. I'm all tongue-tied. Hey, um, so you wrote this great thing. Oh, first let me tell them uh, that you wrote uh, American Raj. That's the most recent one. American Raj, Liberation or Domination, Before That, War at the Top of the World. Um, and uh, this guy, you guys all know this guy. He's covered 14-plus wars and all those stupid things, pretty much all of them. That your government did, uh, he was there saying, no, you don't do that, and then they didn't listen, and now here we are. Uh, and that could go for, you know, any of the wars we fought at least in the last 15 years. So, um, the thing of it is, uh, the thing that you're warning them about now is the, uh, not just the situation with Russia, but the media and their coverage of Russia. And this is the thing that's really been bothering me more than the threat of the new Cold War even is all the lies and deceit and the stu- and the, the ridiculous kind of nature of the narrative that's constructed by the U.S. government and their hangers-on. And we've seen a lot of BS in the last 15 years. But to me, it seemed, this is you know second only to the way they buffaloed everybody into Iraq in 2002 and 2003 with the so-called weapons of mass destruction where this level of unanimity about complete and total nonsense is it's really something amazing to behold and especially when we're talking about the most important issue not even as a matter of opinion but as a matter of just fact the most important issue on the face of the earth the relationship between the U.S. government and the Russian government, both armed to the teeth with H-bombs, still 25 years after the end of the Cold War. And so, uh, and this is what your article is about, is not just the Cold War and, and this the, the terrible increase in tensions between the U.S. and Russia, but the New York Times narrative. How dare they, Eric? Well, you know, unfortunately, too many people in the U.S. get their source information for me, the New York Times, the Washington Post, which is like reading the same publication, or from Fox News. And they're all beating the war drums there. And there are these uh, civilians who have never seen a war, uh, who have no concept of what the nuclear confrontation is like. 
And yet I was saying, well, we're going to go and make the desert glow and we're going to go carpet bomb them in Syria and don't dare the Russians put up an airplane or we'll shoot them down. This kind of bellicose nonsense. It was the same kind of stuff we heard in August. It was heard in August 1914 when crowds in Paris and Berlin yelled, you know, Paris yelled on to Berlin and in Berlin, Berlin yelled on to Paris. And in fact, they got a bloodbath. Thank God at least nobody then had nuclear weapons. Yeah. Is this how it was in the Cold War too, where, okay, look, there is a Soviet Union and, and it's run by some horrible bastards, but hey, let's not get carried away. You know, that's kind of what this reminds me of is growing up what I heard about kind of the, the McCarthy era narrative where instead of eh, maybe a couple million former communists in America, they're no millions and millions and they're, they run the whole government and they're ready to overthrow the constitution and, and subjugate us all under the rule of Moscow. Well, now a terror, so-called terrorism has replaced the terrors of communism. But uh, we have a very loud and, and misinformed commentariat uh, that's driving the news and politics these days. And listening to the Republican candidates for president is, is horrifying. It's hair-raising. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned in my column uh, uh, about uh, in 1983, the U.S. and Ronald Reagan had been fulminating against Moscow, evil empire and, you know, threat to Western civilization, etc. The Soviets listened to all this baloney and they uh, became convinced that the U.S. was planning to attack mm -hmm. the Soviet Union. And then along came a, an ill-conceived NATO exercise called Able Archer that... Uh, was a headquarters exercise, didn't involve troops, but the Soviets misread it, and they believed that the NATO was now gearing up to uh, assault the Soviet Union. The, the Soviet missile forces went on alert, and then came a, a report that uh, U, U.S. missiles were on the way for Russia, and there was up to a couple of Soviet officers in the PVO Strani, the Soviet Air Defense Forces, to make a decision whether to inaugurate a nuclear war uh, or just to to dismiss the attack reports. Thank God uh, they had the courage and brains to uh, stand down the alert and say, no, this is a glitch, because if they hadn't, we would have had nuclear war, and that would have been the end of our poor old planet. Amazing. You know, I think back on that time, too, where, you know, I was just a little kid and thinking, wow, you know, all this brinksmanship and all the tough guy talk and whatever, this seems pretty dangerous. And I remember my dad reassuring me that, like, yeah, you know, nukes are pretty scary and all that, but nobody on either side wants war. And we got that going for us that, you know, nobody really wants to have this confrontation They're, You know, they have to coexist. And so that is how it is. But what you're saying is right at that same time, while they didn't want war, they were so reckless, they almost killed us all. That's right. And uh, back then, the battle lines were very carefully drawn and delineated. And there was a rule uh, that the two uh, power blocks must never clash directly. So they could fight little proxy wars in places like Angola or South Africa or Mozambique, but not in the Fulda Gap in uh, northern Germany. Uh, but, but so there was there was caution, particularly amongst the military men. The Curtis LeMay crowd uh, of uh, bomb maniacs had been retired. 
there was a sober realization of the dangers. But today, we listen to our Republican candidates uh, beating the war drums and making outrageous statements. And, you know, it, we don't think how the rest of the world is seeing us. Uh, people are really worried that the United States is is going deep into some kind of militarist, uh, extreme right-wing uh, trend, and that whoever takes wins as Republican nominee, if he becomes president, uh, we could be looking really at the, uh, the worst threat of war we've seen since the uh, Abel Archer incident. Man, you know, again, back to Iraq 02 and 03, half the population of America knew better, right? It was about 50-50 a month or so before the invasion, but virtually none of that 50% that knew better lived in Washington, D.C. There, every genius idiot told each other that, yeah, of course, we all know this is true. We all agree about this, and we all agree about the necessity of this, and we all agree about what the facts are. And even though none of them knew a damn thing that would really say that, yes, they have weapons of mass destruction there, everybody was just kind of going along with what everybody else thinks. And it's it's kind of impossible that all these people are that wrong, they all thought to themselves. And I'm talking about the cast of MSNBC and every other cable news channel and all the major newspapers and all the you know, most influential Sunday morning news program hosts and all these kind of people all completely bought in to the ridiculous consensus that was so easy for just regular lay hippies and or anyone else to debunk at the time. And that's the same thing it seems like here with Russia, where, hey, all the cool kids, all the jocks and cheerleaders all know that it's demonized Russia time, and nobody's even interested in what the facts are. They're only interested in racing to be part of... Of the group that's pushing the fake narrative and making their their money and their fame in the process and now we got to take a break one second y'all more with the great eric margulies right after this hey i'll scott horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author scott mcpherson freedom and security the second amendment and the right to keep and bear arms this is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control america is exceptional here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. Hey, all Scott here for Samurai Tech Academy at MasterSamuraiTech.com. Modern appliance repair requires true technicians who can troubleshoot their high-tech electronics. If you're young and looking to make some real money, or you've been at it a while and just need to keep your skills up to date, Samurai Tech Academy teaches it all. And they'll also show you the business, how to own and run your own. Take a free sample course to see how easily you can learn appliance repair from MasterSamuraiTech.com. Use coupon code Scott Horton for 10% off any course or set of courses at MasterSamuraiTech.com. All right, y'all, welcome back. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. See how I timed that there? Pretty bad, huh? Okay, uh, yeah, I'm Scott Horton. I'm talking with the great Eric Margulies, and I'm sorry for talking so much, uh, Eric, but, um, I think I'm kind of onto something there with, uh, my idea that nobody in DC really knows a damn thing about Russia other than what they think they're supposed to believe about them. And I gotta say, at least on space, sounds right that Vladimir Putin is a strong man, and what he would like to do is be even stronger, and, so therefore, what America must do is contain him. And so my question for you is just how strong of a man is Vladimir Putin? 
Well, he is no doubt he's a strong, a very strong man. Uh, he's brought up in the KGB in their first chief directorate, which is foreign intelligence. He was, wasn't a thug. He was a sophisticated counterintelligence officer. Uh, he's a very hard man. Uh, but he has uh, a flair for politics. He's widely admired in Europe by, by the right. No doubt about it. If Americans knew more, he'd be more admired in the United States, too. But uh, he really thinks he's defending Russia uh, from being torn apart by the United States and its allies in Europe. And uh, Putin's popularity is well over 82 percent in the polls. That's why in my writing, I mentioned some idiotic female professor in Colombia who claimed that he's picking a fight with the West uh, to enhance his popularity rating, uh, he doesn't have to. He is prob Putin is probably the, w the most popular leader in the Western world. All right. Well, so um, what's with all the propaganda? I mean, is he, uh, well, for example, obviously we all know the history. I don't want to be like patronizing the audience. They all know about NATO expansion. They know about the coup in Ukraine in 2014 and all that. But the American spin on that is, yeah, but we have to do that. Otherwise, Putin would conquer the Baltics. He'd conquer Ukraine. He'd march in through the folded gap and kill us all. Well, that's right. And uh, President Putin... We don't call him president anymore in the U.S. That's a, we just call him by his last name, derogatory. Um, yeah, even even our president calls him Putin. I know it's it's almost if like they're going to spit after saying and citing the name of the devil. Uh, it's absurd, but there is a pro-war party in the U.S. Uh, there are a number of pro-war war factions that uh, now see Russia as the main threat to American global domination. And certainly Russia is. Russia is a resistor. So is China. And uh, Russia is supporting some small countries like Iran uh, and Syria that won't uh, rope, roll over and play dead when Washington says so. Yes, Russia is, uh, is considered a threat. But uh, really, I don't think in the top echelons of, of Washington, Anyone believes that Russia is about to reinvade Western Europe. Yeah, or even Eastern Europe. Right. I mean, that's the thing is, uh, you know, to what degree do they know they're lying or does it even matter? Do they even care what's true when, you know, and this goes back to the Abel Archer thing. I would have thought that someone in the Reagan administration would have, you know, elbowed and whispered, to a Russian official at some point that, like, you know we're just bullshitting here, selling weapons and making money for our friends and scaring the hell out of people to enhance our own power. And we're not really going to have a nuclear war, guys. We're just playing the game, right? But, geez, they didn't have that kind of understanding, huh? They were just hoping that the Russians understood. And it seems like that's kind of what they're doing now is... You know, the priority is selling Lockheed products to the Pentagon, which makes sense if you're a Lockheed product salesman or if you're a Pentagon Lockheed product procurer. But uh, what about the rest of us and the danger that they're putting us in? Nobody seems to be serving as a check on that. No, and worse, uh, there are there are idiots in Washington like Kenneth Pollack, uh, who I just saw on TV the other night, 
uh, in sending war uh, great alarms about oh the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. He was the same fool who was out there in 2003 beating the drums about Iraqi nuclear weapons, uh, threatening our lives, and your little children are going to be vaporized. So, and yet this idiot and similar ones are now dominant in the media. Critics of the war who said this is crazy, there are no weapons of mass destruction, are, have now been uh, sidelined or marginalized. Uh, I speak myself too, uh, from some of the big network TV. And it's the same old story. You know, I was reading the other day that Putin was promising to help prop up the government in Kabul in the face of the Taliban. And, uh, I wondered if maybe America and Saudi are going to start our thought of what you had said on the show previously. It looks like Saudi's sending ISIS to marginalize, to fight the Taliban. And obviously, eventually, the coalition government in uh, Kabul as well. And um, I wonder if it's really that simple. We're going straight back to the 1980s where uh, Obama's Ronald Reagan starts back in al-Qaeda in Afghanistan against the Russians again. Well, uh, you know, I think the, uh, I was there in the 80s and, uh, with the Mujahideen fighting against the Soviets and, uh, the CIA provided the money and some of the transportation and logistics, but it was the Pakistani intelligence service, ISI, that really ran that war. And it should not be compared to what's going on today with uh, ISIS. Uh, there is no doubt, as you say, Scott, a temptation uh, to use ISIS or ISIL, whatever they would call them, uh, against the uh, against the Taliban, because fighting fire with fire, they say, uh, the Afghan puppet government in Kabul uh, that we're backing, uh, like the puppet government in Baghdad, is completely useless, and it's it's armed forces have no loyalty to the government or they're just mercenaries and they're trying to avoid getting shot, uh, live long enough to get paid. So, uh, yes, there is a temptation to use ISIS and it fits neatly into this point that uh, we've been dealing with ISIS with kid gloves uh, and most of the attacks against them have been uh, political theater designed to impress foreigners. Mm-hmm. Hey, by the way, uh, I, I doubt you heard the interview, but did you read uh, Seymour Hersh's new one about the Pentagon sort of secretly helping Assad all this time? I, I did with the greatest of interest. See, you know, I have great uh, respect for Hersh. He's a most credible journalist and one that we should all look up to. And uh, he can't be bought off or intimidated off. When official Washington lives in terror of Seymour Hersh. But his point was right that the uh, high-ranking elements of the Pentagon have been passing intelligence information via allies, Germany, Israel, Jordan, etc., to uh, the Syrian government, uh, because they want, they don't think that the government should be overthrown in Syria. They think the Assad regime is the natural ally of the United States. And God help us if it's overthrown, because with our help, because Syria will turn into a massive bloodbath. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny the way that he says in there, though, that, well, no, the administration didn't have to know about it. And that's kind of how it works. These bureaucracies really kind of do their own thing. In this case, I think, you know, any sane man would side with the Pentagon. I don't know really about 
working with Assad, but certainly opposing the effort to overthrow him to the benefit of al-Nusra and or the Islamic State, for crying out loud. Um, but, uh, you know, I wonder about the infighting inside the administration over that. Uh, how do, you know, how does the civilian part of the government respond to insubordination when it's insubordination against treason? <laughs> you know, what a well, funny that's episode. That's the good question of the German officers who wanted to overthrow Hitler, but they'd uh, uh, sworn a vow to def- uphold the government. And uh, that is the problem. But, uh, you know, there is a, the Pentagon, we have to think, I, I, the Pentagon is really the fourth branch of government. It's become that way. And in many ways, it conducts its own foreign policy and its own foreign aid program and arms programs and its own intelligence programs through the Defense Intelligence Agency. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very independent, just the way the Navy was always quite independent, got its own way. And uh, so the Pentagon is doing is, is right, is disgusted with the uh, Obama White House. And uh, they're not trying to start a war. They're trying to avoid one. And uh, they're put in a very difficult position. Uh, they shouldn't be doing it. But on the other hand, it's perhaps a good thing they are. Yeah, it's it's uh, I always like to highlight the irony here, uh, not, you know, in support of the Pentagon, but just to show how often it really seems to be that it's the generals who tell the politicians, no, we cannot do this, right? Like when it comes to bombing Iran, it was Admiral Fallon in 2007 that said, over my dead body, are we doing this? No way. And, uh, and you know, Syria 2013, when Obama almost uh, bombed Assad then, it was the Pentagon. It was the chairman, Joint Chiefs of Staff, came out through the president right under the bus said, I don't know why we got to do this now on TV. And so, oh. There goes support from the military publicly, you know, and and of course they they steamrolled him into the Afghan surge. So I don't want to like spin too too much in their behalf, but but when it's the civilians going way off and it's the standing army that's holding them back, I mean that's really something else. Well, it is, and I've got great admiration for a, a lot of our senior officers in the Pentagon. They did the right thing as as American. Uh, patriots or American soldiers. And you have to understand the thinking of the generals there. They are disgusted by these, uh, these liberal warrior, liberal women like Susan Powers at the UN and, and, and Rice in the White House who are formulating this policy about which they know and understand nothing. Uh, and they're throwing the lives away of the professional soldiers who have to go and fight in these messes that these airy-headed civilian advisors have created. We saw the same thing back in Vietnam with Robert McNamara and his whiz kids. It's a curse that we have to live with. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, at least we've got you to read so we know what the truth is in the face of the onslaught of propaganda. Y'all, make sure and bookmark uns.com, the great Eric Margulies, and uh, our next guest, Patrick Coburn, writes there as well. Uns.com, UNZ, Uns.com. For the great Eric Margulies, this one is called Retro Cold War Guff from the New York Times. Really appreciate it, as always. Cheers, Scott.
And we'll be right back, y'all, with Patrick Coburn after this. Hey, y'all, Scott here. First, I want to take a second to thank all the show's listeners, sponsors, and supporters for helping make this show what it is. I literally couldn't do it without you. And now I want to tell you about the newest way to help support the show. Whenever you shop at Amazon.com, stop by ScottHorton.org first. And just click the Amazon logo on the right side of the page. That way, the show will get a kickback from Amazon's end of the sale. It won't cost you an extra cent. And it's not just books. Amazon.com sells just about everything in the world except cars, I think. So whatever you need, they've got it. Just click the Amazon logo on the right side of the page at ScottHorton.org or go to scotthorton.org slash Amazon. Hey, y'all, Scott Horton here for wallstreetwindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop, which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at wallstreetwindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com. All right, y'all. Welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Up next is the great Patrick Coburn, Middle East correspondent for The Independent. That's independent.co.uk. They also keep his archives at uns.com. This one is called Syrian Civil War. No end in sight for terrorism or the refugees fleeing to safety. Welcome back to the show, Patrick. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Good, good. Happy uh, New Year, Merry Christmas, and all those things to you. Same uh, to you. Really appreciate you joining us, as always. So, uh, lots of bad news here. I know you're just being realistic. Um, bottom line in this article, I think, sir, you say that uh, virtually all of the major factions of which there are uncounted <laughs> numbers uh all of the major factions fighting in the syrian war or backing one side or the other in the syrian war all seem to lack any real powerful incentive to make peace they all seem to instead have the incentive to keep on fighting and try to have things more their way before they quit and so nothing but bad news on the horizon is that pretty much right yeah, that's a, that's a large part of it. Um, uh, I was also saying that, you know, in Syria in particular, but also in Iraq, uh, sectarian and ethnic differences have got so deep, hatred is so deep, fear is so deep, that you have very few mixed communities now. Um you know, Sunni Arabs are going one way, Shia another, Kurds a third way, Christians being almost eliminated. Um, and it's very difficult to reverse this. And a lot of the refugees that are out of the country aren't going to be able to go home. They may think they will eventually, but their houses will be taken over by another community or ethnic group or political faction. So, you know, these countries are sort of, which used to, and one of the reasons I always like these countries as they had a sort of diversity of different communities, but that's ending now. Just as it, I mean, it ended in other places, you know, in, uh, in the Balkans, uh, you know, we've seen this before. We saw this in Turkey when the Armenians were massacred. Now it's happened in Iraq and Syria. Yeah. Well, and that's part of the erasing of those incentives, right? Is if, if you're still living in a multi-ethnic and multi-religious city, then there's a lot of incentive to try to work things out. But if the war goes long enough and bad enough that that's no longer the case, then 
that incentive to try to work things out is erased and the incentive to just keep on fighting uh, can still remain. Yeah, and the the most powerful local community or group kicks out the others. And even, you know, it's, you know, as in uh, Syrian um, Kurdish areas, you know, well, they're not particularly, the Kurds aren't particularly sectarian in that area, but so they see the Sunni Arabs as being uh, supporters of ISIS, of Islamic State. If they run away, that's proof that they've supported ISIS. If they stay, they, they say, oh, that shows that they're, they're sleeper cells. They're waiting to stab us in the back. So when you have uh, that level of fear and violence, you know, it's difficult to uh, for minority communities to survive. Right now, so... I don't even know where to begin, really, when it comes to the the different outside powers messing around in the Syrian war. But, you know, obviously, when the Russians intervened, that was a pretty big call of America's bluff on regime change in Damascus. And so and they are, after all, bombing ISIS, if not bombing ISIS together, even though the Americans are threatening the Russians for bombing ISIS just like they are. But. Do you think maybe there's room here for a change in the policy where if America and Russia can at least get their heads together about this, that some kind of nearer term solution could come? Well, maybe not quite in that way. I mean, Washington's made pretty clear that they don't intend to team up with the Russians on this one. On the other hand, they do have parallel in, uh, interests in uh, in Syria, in uh, uh, eliminating Islamic State. And, um, you know, the situation's got even more complicated, but I think it's kind of reaching a, a new crisis, if you like, with the Russians coming in. I think that made Washington take it a lot more seriously. Um, now what happens with Turkey? You know, Turkey's been backing all sorts of, uh, uh, rebels in uh, Syria, rather like Pakistan back the Taliban in uh, Afghanistan. Now the Turks are being squeezed out and the sort of uh, north of Aleppo, what do they, do they invade or do they uh, sit on their hands? What happens there? Ramadi has just been taken uh, by the Iraqi army. That's a, a success, a big success against mm-hmm. the Islamic State. But uh, is it repeatable? You know, how, how, these victories look great, you know, but they're against a sort of, until you see that they're against a, basically a guerrilla army. Guerrilla armies don't stand and fight if they have any sense. They pull back, they wait to uh, make a counterattack, to make a counterattack, uh, surprise counterattack. Mm-hmm. So the, the level of violence is going up, and it's still, you know, kind of uncertain how the, the coming year is going to be like. Now, was this surprising to you at all? Uh the uh, the way the Iraqi army was able to take back, uh, if you can call it that, uh, kick the Islamic State out of Ramadi, or no, you would have just predicted that. Of course, they're going to turn and run just to save their guys and come back later. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't. I would, you see, there's one way that the Islamic State is going to lose if it's attacked by reasonably well organized military forces, uh, and uh, it, they're supported by very heavy U.S. airstrikes um, being called in, then the firepower is too much. Islamic State is going to lose. They saw that at Kobani in the Syrian Kurdish area in Syria when they tried to 
spent four and a half months trying to take this city. They failed. They lost about 2,200 fighters. I've seen the city, about 70% of it smashed up. In that circumstance, they... Oh, no. <clears throat> we got a Skype problem here. Patrick, are you there? Oh, man. Internet connection problem here. Can you hear me now? Don't you hate it when that happens? Skype, man. All right, y'all. Well, it's Patrick Coburn, reporter for The Independent. Um, chat room guys, remind me, where were we exactly where we cut off? So I'm going to try to get it right when we get him back here. Damn. Uh, the Syrian civil war, no end in sight for terrorism or the refugees fleeing to safety. <laughs> Is the piece. Hey, it's live radio. These things happen. Uh, the, all the bad news from Patrick Coburn. I'll tell you what, uh, here in about a minute, we've got a break coming up. Oh, now we lost him completely. Yeah. All right, well, hopefully during the break, we'll figure out where we got cut off so that we can start the next segment, right? Oh, now he's completely offline. Uh, the great Patrick Coburn, everybody. On, uh, the horror of America and our allies' war. In Syria. Oh, Ramadi. That's what we were talking about, right? Uh, yeah, so I know I wanted to ask him about then Mosul and Fallujah. And the Iraqi army seems to be doing a little bit better here. America working with the Iranians on the ground. Did you see the pictures of uh, Soleimani on the ground in Ramadi that came out yesterday? All right. Thank you. Cypress Hill comes and saves me. All right. He's back online. All right. You guys hang tight. I'm going to type a message to Patrick. We'll be back in four minutes or three or five. I think four. Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism versus Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. Hey, all Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. And if this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Robertson Roberts Brokerage Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium, and they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. 
and they take Bitcoin. Call Robertson Robertson at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. All right. God dang, Skype. You're making me so angry now. Holy crap. Iran, because of the great leadership of the Shah, is an island of stability in one of the more troubled areas of the world. This is a great tribute to you, Your Majesty, and to your leadership, and to the respect and the admiration and love which your people give to you. We know Al-Qaeda, Zawahiri, is supporting the opposition in Syria. Are we supporting Al-Qaeda in Syria? Hamas is now supporting the opposition. Are we supporting Hamas in Syria? Okay, sorry about that, guys. Technical difficulties, live radio, these things happen, no big deal. We got the heroic Patrick Coburn uh, back on the line, on the telephone line, the reliable one this time. Um, and uh, I didn't mention before, I'm very sorry about this. I really hope that you guys will read The Rise of Islamic State uh, by Patrick Coburn, who, and you guys know, you regular listeners to this show, who absolutely called it, uh, you know, for years leading up to the declaration of the caliphate um, and has done the best job of anybody covering this story, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, the Rise of Islamic State, that's the book. Uh, he writes for The Independent and at uns.com. And uh, I'm sorry, sir, where we got uh, cut off by the technical difficulties, you were talking about uh, the Islamic State's failure at Kobani, where the Kurds, backed by American air power, drove them out after a long yeah, battle. Yeah, that's the pattern of this war, this guerrilla war, that the ISIS have, uh, are militarily pretty effective, but they can't really stand up to um, a um, infantry backed by heavy air power. Uh, at Ramadi, the Iraqi army doesn't have that many, uh, you know, good quality troops. It has the Golden Division. It's, it's a one good, good, uh, good division. It has um, some uh, uh, other special units, but not that numbers. You put those in one set piece battle together with U.S. air power, they're going to win. Now, what it looks as if uh, ISIS is doing, it's not going to play that game at the moment. That it seems to have pulled out of Ramadi at the last moment, leaving lots of bombs and uh, booby traps behind. Uh, did the same in uh, Sinjar, uh, up in uh, Iraqi Kurdistan uh, a few months ago. Uh, so, uh, so you know, this is undoubtedly a success for the Iraqi government, but uh, it could be, one could exaggerate it by, uh, you know, forgetting what, what kind of war is being fought here. Mm-hmm. Well, and... I mean, what about the occupation of Ramadi? Or maybe we could go back to Tikrit. The the Shiistan forces drove the Islamic State out of Tikrit. Did they allow the Sunni population to come back, or is that part well, of the well, sectarian cleansing you talked about? No, you know, some people try to come back. It's still, uh, you know, very sectarian, very dangerous. If you're a Sunni there, you want to go down to Baghdad, you stand a good chance of being kidnapped on the road. Um, the... Um, you know, the Sunnis feel that uh, as soon as uh, the Shia or the anybody else takes over, uh, they're targeted, they're vulnerable. Um, they uh, so you know there isn't there isn't any coming together uh, here. Um, so 
war ending. You know, you can take these cities, but uh, then if you the villages around are still full of ISIS, uh, at some point they'll counterattack. There's no doubt, you know, that they're being attacked from a lot of directions at the moment. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt they're suffering losses, and uh, but they're a long way from being uh, defeated. Now, I'm sure this is a very hard one to answer, really, but if you could try to to put yourself in the position of the uh, the majority Sunni population of Ramadi, do you think that they much prefer the Islamic State to the Baghdad government's forces, or vice versa, or they're just completely stuck, you know, with you know, in fear of both sides, you know, like well, being stuck you know, between Hitler and Stalin? Really, you know, these people are terrified, and what you know, nobody's asking them what they want. You know, they're very solely in Syria. You know, they, when uh, ISIS moves in, they're not, not too pleased. They know what's going to happen. You know, they're going to be hit by the airstrikes and artillery. So, but what do they do? You know, last time around, they, a lot of them fled, tens of thousands, maybe 70,000 fled towards Baghdad. But they couldn't get into Baghdad past the checkpoints because in Baghdad, they think, aha, these are the uh, ISIS sleeper cells. This is, uh, uh, we don't trust these people. So they end up, uh, you know, sort of camping beside the road. Uh, so they're in a, you know, an, an appalling situation. In that whole province around uh, Anbar, which is uh, around Ramadi, Anbar province, which is very big, it's about a third of Iraq, and about almost um, half, about 43% of the population uh, has fled its homes, it's sort of in different parts of Iraq. And this is the, the name of the game at the moment, of people drifting around with no really nowhere that they can go. Yeah. And it seems like, you know, the Islamic State, their totalitarians, they seem like a bunch of madmen, really, but when the Shiite forces come, and that seems to portend this kind of sectarian cleansing. At least the Islamic State doesn't kick them all out of their homes and just rule over them. But when the Bada Brigade comes, then, you know, say hi to the power drill or hit the road, right? Yeah, I mean, this is meant to be the Iraqi. I mean, maybe the first troops, you know, maybe aren't that sectarian, but the people who follow up are. Um, So, uh, you know, there's, there's no doubt that the, the Islamic State is under pressure, not just in Iraq, but in Syria. There's a lot of fighting against the Syrian Kurds who've been advancing in the last couple of days. Um, the, they're being hit by the Americans, they're being hit by the Russians. Uh, but again, um, it looks to me as if they have decided they're not going to have another Kobani. They're not going to stand and fight where the other side can use massive firepower against them, that they'll pursue guerrilla tactics, pull back, wait for an opportunity, uh, launch surprise attacks. Mm-hmm. And then, but so, I mean, if they continue on that way, do you think the Iraqi government might be able then to sack Fallujah and Mosul and drive them just out into the countryside? Uh, they might, you know, gradually um, push, you know, devastate these cities and, uh, so forth, um, they might push them out, but this would be a long process, you know, uh, because they'd hold on to the areas where there are 100, you know, villages where that are 100% Sunni, where they have real support. Um, the And, um, you know, we'll see now if uh, uh, the Iraqi government's going to try and attack Mosul. That would have thought it'd be quite a long time before they tried that. Uh, and, and there's something else, too. 
be uh, to be very careful about. Normally, when Islamic State suffers a setback anywhere, it sort of compensates that by some atrocity, some sudden attack, a suicide attack. You know, we saw it in Paris the other day. Uh, we've seen it in uh, Iraq many times. That uh, just as the Iraqi government is, you know, cheering itself on and saying, you know, we're we're the winners. Uh, something really horrible happens, so one should be uh, very careful about. Uh, one should uh, uh, look at the news very carefully in the next few days. Mm. And now, this is a little bit off topic, but I'd I'd be willing to bet you have something interesting to say about the relationship between the Islamic State and the wider Islamic world. There was a statement that was put out by the so-called Caliph Ibrahim uh, Baghdadi saying, you know, come one, come all to support the Islamic State. It seemed to be pretty much greeted by ridicule, as far as I could tell from reading Western media anyway. Um, and as as you've been discussing, people have been running from the Islamic State for their lives uh, by the millions at this point. And, uh, and yet, of course, all the propaganda is they hate us because they're Muslim. And Islam makes Muslims hate things that are good and true and beautiful and innocent. And what a demonic, terrible religion they have. And I just wonder whether, you know, you had a comment about, you know, the broader Muslim world's reaction to the IS. But it's kind of very much playing the game that, uh, ISIS would like them to play, which is to, uh, to, see all Muslims as being the same as ISIS, to visit uh, communal punishment or rejection on Muslims. After, you know, a quarter of the world's population is Muslim, you know. So I think people who sort of, you know, talk about Islamo-fascists talking about all Muslims uh, is uh, very much playing to the hands of ISIS. But there is another thing which has been happening, which is the way in which extreme Saudi Wahhabism the most sort of fundamentalist, the most uh, reactionary, uh, the uh, type of Islam which treats women as chattels, has increasingly dominated Sunni Islam. It's done so because it's backed by Saudi money uh, from the state. Uh, you know, you want to build a mosque in uh, Bangladesh or somewhere, you get the money from uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, so that is a change, but otherwise this sort of general... Uh, 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 demonization of Islam is very much playing into the hands of ISIS. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming back on the show, Patrick. Really appreciate it. And sorry about those technical difficulties. No, no. Thank you. Happy Always. New Year, sir. Bye-bye. All right, y'all. That is the great Patrick Coburn at the independent, independent.co.uk and uns.com. The book is Rise of Islamic State. And we'll be right back with what's his name, somebody from Oxfam about the Yemen war in just a sec. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. This nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone. We are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at scotthorton.org or thewarstate.com. Hey, y'all, guess what? You can now order transcripts of any interview I've done for the incredibly reasonable price of two and a half bucks each. Listen, finding a good transcriptionist is near impossible, but I've got one now. 
Just go to scotthorton.org slash transcripts, enter the name and date of the interview you want written up, click the PayPal button, and I'll have it in your email in 72 hours max. You don't need a PayPal account to do this. Man, I'm really going to have to learn how to talk more good. That's scotthorton.org slash transcripts. All right, you guys, welcome back to the show here. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Next up is Scott Paul from Oxfam International. That's Oxfam.org. Welcome to the show. Scott, how are you? Doing all right. Thanks uh, Thanks for having me on, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate you joining us. And uh, it's a very important subject, and it's one that's not getting very much attention because uh, well, a lot of reasons, I guess. But anyway... Uh, it's the war in Yemen, America and Saudi Arabia's war against Yemen. And uh, you guys have been doing quite a bit of reporting about this. And so I guess, can we just start with the bad news? Can you break down, uh, you know, however you could uh, best characterize the plight of the civilian population of this country under American and Saudi attack? Well, Yemen is first and foremost a humanitarian emergency. Um, right now, more than four out of five people in Yemen need some form of humanitarian assistance. And that makes, uh, that makes Yemen the country where more people need assistance than any other country in the world. Um, and it's, it's, as you mentioned, not being reported. I think we, we more or less consider it a forgotten crisis given the scale of need and given the, the relatively little attention it's received. Um, you know, at this point, there's the more than the two world. and a half. Even worse than Somalia, huh? Yeah, there's many more people uh, in need in Yemen right now than in Somalia. And there's actually a number of people, uh, about 100,000 people, who either were Somali refugees in Yemen or Yemeni people who have now fled Yemen to go to Somalia to, to seek safety. So Yemen is, is really, um, you know, it's, it's amongst the worst crises in the world. And by the numbers, there's more people in need in Yemen than any other country. Um, we're talking about a conflict that's now spread to 20 of, of the 22 governorates in Yemen. There's about 14 million people who lack a- adequate access to health care. The system, the health care system is close to collapse. Um, and about 7.7 million people in Yemen are needing emergency food assistance. That's, that's the sort of food assistance needed to survive. Um, so through all of this, um, you know, all, all parties to the conflict in Yemen um, the Saudi, the Saudi-led coalition, uh, the Houthis, um, other parties on the ground uh, have all failed to meet their obligations under international humanitarian law, and, and most importantly, have uh, have have passed by opportunities to seek a durable political settlement. Um, the the good news in all this is it's not too late to salvage peace in Yemen. There are talks. There's a political process that began last month that does have some momentum behind it. And our hope is, you know, as we provide assistance, we, we're providing assistance to a, a little bit more than 600,000 people in Yemen. But there's no way that organizations like Oxfam can meet the scale of need uh, with, without a, a durable peace. Um, so we're calling on all parties to go back to the table uh, and observe the ceasefire that they've agreed to and set forth an inclusive political process. Now, I don't know if this is just difficult to answer or impossible to answer, but do you know how many people have died of deprivation in the war? I mean, they say thousands have died in the fighting, right. uh, civilians and otherwise. Um, but, you know, they said back in 
you know, last spring that, geez, you know, this is a country, the poorest country in the Middle East already, and imports between 80 to 90 percent of their food. Now, obviously, people try to make do in other ways and this kind of thing, but um, we haven't really heard necessarily about people, you know, dying en masse like they did in Somalia in 2011, uh, for example. Uh, but maybe that's just because of a lack of reporting, or maybe I just missed it, or I don't know. No, it, it, it's hard to it's hard to say exactly how many people have have died um, due to deprivation specifically. You know, you have two and a half million people who have been forced from their homes, um, and a lot of them have nowhere else to go other than to sort of go, go out under the open sun uh, and sleep out under in, in the open with no shelter at all. Um, you've got I mentioned there's 14 million people that don't have access to, to health care. Um, there is entire regions that don't have functioning health facilities. Um, you know, I think it's difficult to track and, and figure out how many people have died, but the, the, the malnutrition numbers are absolutely off the charts. Um, and as you mentioned, that's apart from the roughly 2,700 civilians that have been killed uh, throughout the country, about 240 of them children. Yeah, even that is amazing that that count is so low. That must be a very conservative estimate there after yeah. almost a full year of air war here. Yeah, um, it's and and I think the people who maintain those numbers uh, at the United Nations, they're aware of the shortcomings of their methodologies. Um, but you know, I, I think in the interest of credibility, they try to keep a conservative count. Yeah. Uh, but as you say, to, if twenty seven hundred civilians is the conservative number, uh, it is pretty frightening to think about what we might learn once the conflict ends about right. the extent of the damage that this is that this is. Um, had on the civilian population. Right. Then it'll be left to Alan Hyde and the Lancet and whoever to come and count the excess deaths over the time period uh, from, you know, the one cause or another comparing the death rates. Uh, what a what a sick business uh, that America, this niche that America creates in the global market, right? And people come and, and count the number of people that we starve to death. And the American, the American role in this conflict has been very confused. U.S. policy uh, is, has been very disjointed. Um, you know, on one hand, um, the U.S. has called uh, at first privately, now publicly, for an end to the conflict. Um, and according to reports, has pressed the, the Saudis and other members of the coalition to really pay, to, 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 to really work hard to achieve peace through, through the political process. Um, but at the very same time, there's parts of the government that are pressing forward very urgently to supply the Saudis with um, more precision weaponry and ordnance that can be dropped in Yemen. Um, and so you, you sort of have a situation where there's, there's some very mixed messages coming out of Washington. Uh, and the coalition and the government of Yemen that's, that's sort of given permission to the coalition to continue its bombing campaign uh, is rightly reading that as a lack of political will in the United States to achieve peace. Mm -hmm. um, so, for those of you who are listening, who who have, um, you know, who, who who are disturbed by these reports, there's some really very important action you can take. You can tell your members of Congress that these weapon sales that are going forward to supply the coalition and, and Saudi Arabia in particular need to be stopped until there's a real clear political process in place so that those weapons don't end up hurting civilians in Yemen. Yeah, a recent guest pointed out that if there's any Yemen lobby at all, 
it's on the side of the war, not on the side of the people being bombed. There's no one to speak for them other than groups like yours. And and as you just mentioned, regular, you know, citizens in the country who, uh, you know, are disturbed by this and would like to see something done about it. But other than that, that's it. There's not a special interest group in this country that is here representing the victims in this case. And and when it comes to the mixed messages, I think we'll just stick to what they do instead of what they say. <laughs> when it comes to billion-dollar arms transfers in the middle of this, and after all, that's reported by the Wall Street Journal and the L.A. Times and absolute official media from the highest levels, it's American planes that are refueling the Saudi fighter jets as it's American bombs hanging off of their wings and their F-18 or F-16s and F-15s that we sold them in the first place. It's Americans typing in all those GPS coordinates for where to go and drop the thing. I mean, this is an American war as much as it's a Saudi one. There's just no denying it at that point. I mean, it's not like the the White House said that the Wall Street Journal had it all wrong or anything like that. You know what I mean? That's that's yeah. the story. Simple the, as the that. Deta- it's America's running the Saudi Air Force. Yeah, I mean the the details of of U.S. involvement in the coalition and support for the coalition, you know, there there might be a report here that you know that claims a certain kind of support, a report there that claims another kind. But what's not in dispute at all is that the U.S. is on one side of its mouth saying we want peace, and on the other side of its mouth helping one of the parties advance its military objectives. Right. Um, all right. I'm sorry to interrupt. Not- we got to hold it right there and take this break. When we get back, I'll let you finish your statement and more. It's Scott Paul from Oxfam. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me. I on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday, and The Future of Freedom with FFF founder and president Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there, scotthorton.liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. Don't you get sick of the Israel lobby trying to get us into more wars in the Middle East? Or always abusing Palestinians with your tax dollars? It once seemed like the lobby would always have full-spectrum dominance on the foreign policy discussion in D.C. But those days are over. The Council for the National Interest is the America lobby, standing up and pushing back against the Israel lobby's undue influence on Capitol Hill. Go show some support at councilforthenationalinterest.org. That's councilforthenationalinterest.org. All right, you guys. Welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. I'm talking with Scott Paul from Oxfam International. We're talking about the massive humanitarian crisis in Yemen, the worst humanitarian crisis on the face of the earth right now, uh, all caused by Washington, D.C. and Riyadh, of course, uh, if you don't mind a, a small tangent here for a second, Scott, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about Oxfam. Uh, seems like I probably should have been talking with you guys all along, but, uh, you know, I'm a suspicious type. So I wonder, uh, where you get your money and what your agenda is. And, and I hope you didn't support the war in Libya like Amnesty International did back in 2011 and things like that. Sure thing, Scott. Um, Oxfam is an impartial humanitarian organization. We go wherever the need is greatest. Um, we've been in Yemen now for almost 33 years. Um, uh, our, our programs historically there have been very focused on development activities, trying to get youth and women uh, involved in the political process, 
Um, and of course, whenever there's a humanitarian emergency, um, we try to, to, to meet whatever need, uh, whatever need people have and to help them fulfill their rights. Um, we, we, we didn't take a position on the war, on the war in Libya. Um, and, you know, in, in situations like the war in Yemen, um, much like the war in Syria, much like the conflict in South Sudan, um, our agenda is to make sure people can enjoy the full range of their human rights. And in those situations, as in many others, that means uh, first agreeing on a ceasefire and then achieving a durable political solution. Mm-hmm. This is a conflict in which there really are no angels. Um, all of the parties in Yemen have committed um, some pretty significant violations of the laws of armed conflict, um, and all of them have, have passed by opportunities to bring the conflict to an end. Um, so that's that's a bit about us. We're, as I mentioned, we're reaching a bit more than 600,000 people uh, inside Yemen, mainly to help them meet their their needs related to uh, to clean and safe water, mm-hmm. sanitation, and hygiene. All right. Now, pardon me for being jerky, but I, if I could just narrow down that point real quick there, because a warmonger can say, "Hey, we're always just doing." whatever we can to secure the blessings of liberty for the people. That's why we must have a regime change rather than that's why we must have an immediate ceasefire. And if I read you right, what you're saying is y'all's thing is there should never be a war, always ceasefire and always negotiate whatever it is, or it kind of sound like maybe there was a little bit of wiggle room in there to, well, whatever we think will best secure security for people over some medium or long term, you know what I mean? Sure. So, I mean, we're a rights-based organization, which means we we're, we listen to the people who we're serving. Um, and what people say they want to determine their own future and determine their own security needs are primarily going to guide our positions. Um, in most of the conflicts we work uh, in around the world today, what they want most is peace, and they want uh, a security forces that safeguard their interests not try to defeat external threats or advance political agendas. Um, and that, that's been our position in you know, the, ma- the, the big conflicts and the big humanitarian emergencies around the world. Mm-hmm. But so, like, for example, in Yemen, if the Houthis or al-Qaeda or one of the other sides had pretty much been angels when it came to the laws of war, at least, and, and had not violated them, within well, you guys feel like, well, we've got to support them then, and our policy should be that they should win and and America or, or someone else should support their side to make sure that the war criminal side doesn't win? I mean, our, our, our position vis-a-vis the U.S. government is always going to be, what do we need to do to make sure people in these crises can fulfill the full range of their human rights? Nine times out of ten, including in Yemen right now, that's to bring the parties together to achieve an immediate ceasefire and a long-term political solution. All right. um, it's, I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine a hypothetical in Yemen in particular where that wouldn't be true. I got you. Okay. Um, and uh, the one thing I'll add to that is I think the main thing that, that Yemen's political track now is, is lacking other than uh, a commitment from the major parties to achieve a durable solution is the involvement of women. Women have been at the forefront of, uh, of of Yemen's political evolution ever since the overthrow of former President Saleh in 2011. Um, they've really helped push the limits of, of you know what what the Yemeni government will do 
um, to provide not just for their female citizens, but for all of their citizens over the couple of years after that revolution. And now their exclusion from the peace process has enabled the people who are fighting, I think, to push on with their military objectives rather than seek, you know, seek, seek a peace that serves all of their people. We've been told that the next round of peace talks will include more women, and uh, we really, really hope that the parties fulfill their commitment to bring more women into their delegations. Mm-hmm. And you're saying this not as some kind of token feminist thing, but that they have a very important role that they have been playing that they are now being excluded from. That it's exactly right. I, I can't imagine what I could possibly say that would be tokenistically feminine. No, 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 no. Feminist, uh, I said. Feminist, uh, I said. I was just, I was just clarifying. I didn't mean to. I wasn't uh, being jerky on that one. I was just clarifying no, no, no. your point. I think that. Yeah, and and, and the po- the point I think is twofold because you know, for in the first instance, women have been very instrumental in Yemen's political evolution and have a very, very critical part to play in Yemen's political context specifically. That's in t- on top of the fact that in general there's a very, very strong, um, you know, both empirical and rights-based case to make for including women in the peace process insofar as that including women typically leads to better outcomes than excluding women. Yeah. Well, and so now I guess back to something that you said toward the beginning there that all sides have uh, not done enough. They've all failed basically to do enough to have real talks, but that now there seems to be some real momentum behind them. And uh, I wonder, you know, if you could describe that maybe a little bit more, that momentum on the international level or on the local level to really sort these things out. And if you could compare and contrast that with the incentives that they have to keep fighting. For example, the Houthis have gained the capital city. Do they really want to give it up? Or, you know, could they be willing to do so? And what about all the gains that Al-Qaeda has made with America and Saudi flying as their air force for the last nine months? Sure. Um, So... Last month, the U.N. Special Envoy for Yemen convened the the major Yemeni parties in Switzerland. Um, I have to say, getting them in the same room talking to one another was in and of itself a huge accomplishment. He tried to bring people together way back in May. um, And basically, they showed up, they they stayed in different rooms, they shuttled messages back and forth, and they never even saw each other. So getting them to talk and, and agree on a common agenda was a huge accomplishment on the part of the Special Envoy. Um, beyond that, he, he got them to agree on a framework to first uh, agree, agree to a ceasefire and then uh, meet some very basic, uh, take some very basic steps to build confidence between them. I think it has to be said that the party's conduct during the talks demonstrated the commitment wasn't actually there to take, to take steps forward. Um, so it's going to be up to, and, and I, I should say, the biggest evidence of that is that both parties, uh, both major parties, and, and in particular the coalition, um, used the declared ceasefire to make military advances. So now it comes down, as you said, to incentives going forward. Who has pressure on them to make peace? Who has something to gain to make peace? And who gains from continuing conflict? Um, at this point, most of the parties have a great deal to gain from an inclusive peace process. Um, the, the, the parties, I think, that are most concerned with peace uh, are uh, certain allies of the Houthis that uh, realize they have no political future once the war ends, and, and the same is true for people associated with the government and the coalition. 
So it's, it's really down to international powers like the U.S., um, like other major powers at the United Nations, to send a clear message to all of the parties that the international community simply isn't going to tolerate more fighting. And as I mentioned at the beginning of your program, it's awfully hard to send that message diplomatically when you're selling significant amounts of ordnance that you know are going to resupply the air campaign that's taking place. Yeah, and I guess I don't know if anybody really knows about uh, the the new Saudi king and whether if the Americans really read him the riot act, whether he'd care or not. I mean, and again, I guess as long as they're giving him weapons, it doesn't matter what they read to him. <laughs> I think, yeah, you know, and I think, you know, people in the administration will say, it's, you know, it's more nuanced than that. People are getting the message. They're making progress. Frankly, I, I think there's a, point, <laughs> there, there's a point we can take away from that. But in the big picture, they're being naive if they think that anyone is going to listen to a call for peace while uh, major powers are enabling them with, with defense assistance and weapon sales. Mm. Oh, and I'm sorry. Uh, let me ask you one more question here real quick. Where is Salah now? And I guess I had read that he'd made... Uh, an alliance now and brought a couple army divisions with him uh, and joined up with his old enemies, the Houthis that he'd attacked over and over again, empowering them so much in their victories against him that now they're this powerful, powerful enough to take the capital city and all this. But now he's with them, but he's not their leader, right? He's just joined up with them. Uh, and do you know? Yeah, the, the, the um, former president Salah and the Houthis have, uh, have found common cause uh, in in the, the Houthis military advance, so it's you know they they together comprise um, one of the parties or a set of parties um, that needs to be brought back into line and and needs to be shown the merits of a peaceful a peaceful outcome to this conflict. All right, well, thanks very much for doing the show. I really appreciate it, Scott. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks for having me on. All right, y'all, that is Scott Paul. He is with Oxfam at Oxfam.org. We'll see you all tomorrow.